Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy, and, by the way, one that is fully supportive of all genders of Gallifreyan time and space travelers. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host and senior Brooklyn meteorologist, <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And it's the summer, Frank, and no one seems to be liking us very much or visiting our patron link. I'm oh, not sure. man. I know. I'm not sure what else to do. Are, are we sounding too needy or do we need to increase? <laughs> Do we need to increase our threat level, like um, like making Twill a subscription service, or maybe maybe adopting a freemium model, so they so they get my bits for free, but you're an in-app purchase. I t- if if they don't, uh, if people don't subscribe soon, um, I'll have to work with the Democrats. So, oh yeah. my goodness! So we're recording this episode on July twenty seventh, twenty seventeen, two days after the Senate approved formal consideration of the healthcare apocalypse, uh, but it's still too early to know what they actually will be voting on. Literally, they are writing the skinny bill over lunch as we record this. So I'm going to rein in my comments lest we devolve into another all-rant show. However, I would like to note the words of Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News, who tweeted the other day, quote, I have covered every health bill in Congress since 1986. There has never been anything this nuts before in terms of process. Never. 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 So, much better news, Frank, because today we greet Wendy Netta Epstein, professor of law at DePaul College of Law in Chicago, where she also serves as the faculty director of the Mary and Michael Jaharis Health Law Institute. Professor Epstein teaches contract sales and health law and policy. Her current health care law research focuses on price transparency and healthcare consumer behavior. Heard you speak so many times, Wendy, always impressed by your stuff. So great to have you on Twill. Thank you. Very happy to be here. And what I have to say has been a truly crazy week in health law. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This one will go down in history. The apocalyptic history. We've got a couple of quick lightnings to get off our chest. Frank, uh, I'll, I'll start. At some point, uh, most of us teach or face a practice question involving corporate or institutional liability. Uh, dear listener, this would be a great time to pause the pod and fondly recollect the very first time you read the Darling case. 50 years later, in uh, the world of institutional liability, one of the weirdest, to my mind, doctrinal positions in the modern law is the informed consent exception that holds the physician, not the institution, liable on informed consent theories. Academic skepticism has been heavy, and the appearance of some narrow exceptions recently suggests that exception may be on borrowed time. However, this does not appear to be the view of Pennsylvania's highest court. A new case, Chanel against Toms, and a hat tip to friend of the pod, Norm Tabler, who blogged on this. In that case, the court considered an informed consent case brought by a cancer patient. She'd met with her Geisinger neurosurgeon, who had discussed the risks associated with conservative and aggressive attempts at removal of the entire tumor. So sort of subtotal versus total resection. Subsequently, the 
patient had several conversations with the surgeon's physician assistant that included discussions of risks and led to the signing of an informed consent. Surgical risks occurred, patient sues the surgeon. The trial court instructed the jury that it could consider information communicated by the assistant in determining whether there had been adequate risk disclosure. The Supreme Court considered this was the ground for reversal, holding, quote, the duty to obtain informed consent belongs solely to the physician and it is non-delegable. So just as the court had earlier determined that, quote, a hospital cannot be liable for a physician's failure to obtain informed consent, unquote, so now it held that a physician cannot rely upon a subordinate to disclose the information required to obtain informed consent. Uh, it almost looks that the court's emphasis on the personal and exclusive nature of the physician-patient exchange begs the question whether, at least in Pennsylvania, other clinical staff should be instructed never to have any risk discussions with patients. I, I found this a, a, an extraordinary decision. Yes, that is a really interesting one, Nick. Thank you for bringing it up, and I'll be sure to be adding that to my uh, classes on uh, institutional liability in the future. Well, in terms of my lightning round, I actually have two items I'm going to smash into one, um, which is both are on competition policy. Um, the first is the FTC announced uh, an agenda for its first economic liberty public roundtable. Um, that's actually happening uh, today, July 27th. And um, it's a very interesting shift in or shift uh, toward more focus at the Federal Trade Commission on licensing as an impediment to consumer welfare uh, efficiency, etc. And I think this is a, a very interesting thing to watch. You know, how far can the regulatory agenda of the agencies like FTC, DOJ shift, say, from merger review or going after giant corporations to policing the likes of um, skating coaches? That was one focus of an FTC enforcement action. Um, and of course, the topic of our show, uh, doctors, uh, etc., and um, I think there's an interesting contrast to be drawn between this increasing shift toward uh, policing uh, professional, professional associations, alliances of workers, cooperation among workers, etc., and the uh, Democratic Better Deal that was announced this week, which had a big plank on antitrust that did not mention any of this stuff. Um, it was focused more on uh, mergers, more on the big corporations, and we could certainly see potentially some greater, heavier review of, say, hospital mergers. Uh, coming out of the better deal rhetoric that the uh, Democrats and their advisors on antitrust are looking at. So again, um, the interesting development I'm seeing here is that a sort of partisan divide in antitrust emerging, where it looks essentially as though the conservative elements of the antitrust community want to focus more and more on uh, licensure, occupational licensure, other things that try to sort of uh, bring up the wages of labor, uh, or at least the of laborers who are within the uh, licensure fold, whereas it looks like Democrats are returning to a more traditional focus of antitrust, which is uh, bigness as badness and focusing on the corporate world. So something to watch as antitrust policy evolves. Yeah, it's interesting. And as the uh, the players change their seats at the FTC and, and so on that we've noted recently. Uh, a, a quick uh, add to that little tale, Frank, I, it, it brought to mind Elizabeth Rosenthal's piece in Medium this week on, it, she, it's a funny piece, it's, it's called When a Health Journalist Walked Into a Pharmacy. And uh, what she's talking about there to, to a large extent, I think, is is that sort of professional distribution stack that I've been talking about and critiquing and how the, the way that uh, professionals uh, dominate the distribution of 
prescription drugs devices and so on itself is a uh, a cost problem oh yes and you know i should throw into the show notes um this health affairs article i found i don't think it's terribly recent but what's amazing about it is it actually looks at all the different intermediaries in the drug distribution process and i think it comes down to 41 cents on the dollar 41 percent are going to intermediaries it's it's really shocking let us declare war on the rent seekers <laughs> yes back in episode 39 it was uh, we had a great chat with social historian Gwyn McKee and he talked a lot about how in the wake of deindustrialization particularly in the Rust Belt the rise of healthcare and its high costs increasingly supported the economies of communities throughout the country employing millions of workers. Uh, Sarah Cliff of Vox has a piece about Detroit and Michigan this week, taking a similar tack. Uh, someone giving her a quote in that piece, the Medicaid expansion has created 30,000 new jobs in the state. And I think the macroeconomic impact of the healthcare economy has been much in our minds, uh, not apparently on the minds of uh, the Senate or the House, <laughs> as the healthcare funding that supports these jobs has been put under serious attack. However, there are a couple of recent posts from Dan Diamond at Politico suggesting that maybe we should be a little more critical in our analysis. Um, he paints a far less benign picture of the relationship uh, between the Cleveland Clinic, uh, described as an island of prosperity, and the clinic's extremely poor, primarily African-American neighbors. Not only is that community, according to the article, poor, unhealthy, barely livable, but it's also slowly being eaten by the ever-expanding clinic. And in a very deep companion piece, Diamond discusses the continued problems of uh, nonprofits and how little they give back to their communities in exchange for their tax exemption. And I particularly uh, recommend that second article Diamond because it has a lovely little chart showing how while revenue is up among the mega hospitals, their charity care is down. I'm hoping that Dan won't mind if that chart finds its way into my China slide deck for the upcoming semester. Uh, yes, and uh, for show listeners, the uh, our episode with Jessica Mantle, I think, was one of our deepest dives into that issue. Yes. Yeah. And it's something I hope we can discuss in further detail later on. I have not gotten to read all of the uh, Diamond contributions here, but the one question I kept wanting to ask when I was listening to Diamond's uh, grilling of the Cleveland Clinic CEO um, on his, his podcast, um, uh, Pulse Check, I kept wanting to ask, I, I kept waiting for the CEO to say back to Dan, do you think Cleveland would prefer that we leave for Louisville or mm -hmm. Oklahoma City? Mm. Or do you think Cleveland would prefer that we stay here? And I think we all know the answer to that. Yeah. All right. Just one quick note. I'm not going to go into any detail, but I did see a little note suggesting that the revised common rule could soon be emerging from the Trump regulatory freezer. Uh, so those of you working in that space, uh, it may be ready to answer some of your questions. Let's formally welcome Wendy to the show. And we wanted to talk first about a tremendous new piece that you put out or is in the process of coming out. The setup, which is so great, uh, is, is just a lovely single sentence. Unnecessary care is consumed because doctors prescribe it, patients consent to it, and payers pay for it. This one is hot off the presses. It's called the health insurer nudge. And as you said, I'm actually just in the process of sending it out to law reviews now. Uh, but it's part of a kind of a broader series of pieces where I've addressed various aspects of the, um, the unnecessary care problem in 
the United States. I'm sure your listeners are very well aware that we both do too much that we don't need to do in healthcare in the US. You actually uh, had Zach Buck on the pod talking about a variant of this problem last year. Uh, Too much imaging, too many lab tests, too much over-treating by doing things like prescribing antibiotics when we don't need to. Don't need to. Um, And we also do a lot of the wrong thing. So the, the quintessential examples here have become things like spinal fusion surgery or placing stents when they're unlikely to do any good. So um, the cost of this kind of unnecessary care, it's sort of hard to estimate, but those who have tried have put it in the hundreds of billions of dollars category. So we're not talking about chump change, we're talking about a really significant problem. And if we're as desperate to find savings that will reduce premiums, as the, the current healthcare debate indicates that we, we seem to be, um, we should be looking much harder, I think, at this problem, the unnecessary care problem, rather than where lawmakers have been looking. So um, as you alluded to, Nick, there are many reasons why we have this unnecessary care problem. And frankly, they're pretty well documented in the literature. Um, In a piece that I have coming out in the Emory Law Journal, which I think we might touch on a bit later, I tackle one piece of that puzzle, which has to do with patient incentives and price transparency. But frankly, I think, um, you know, there, there has been a lot said at this point about patients and providers and their contribution to the problem. But I've been thinking a lot lately about the role of insurers in all of this, which I think is is frankly somewhat perplexing because of all the actors in this kind of complicated healthcare web that contribute to unnecessary care, insurers strike me as the actors that would be best situated to act as a check on patients and providers. They certainly don't like unnecessary care. It drives up claims costs and and reduces profit margins. Um, I'm not suggesting that we need to shed too many tears for the insurers here, just that a rational insurer would seem to be motivated to more aggressively rein in unnecessary care. And of course, they did try to do this um, rather unsuccessfully as a political matter during the height of HMO popularity with utilization review. But some exceptions aside, for the most part, and you know, everybody has their anecdotes of how this isn't true, but for the most part, insurers are now taking a much more hands-off approach and are paying for all sorts of high cost but ineffective treatments. Um, Bill Sage and Chris Robertson have both noted this in their work. There's just a lot of insurer deference these days to physicians and their clinical autonomy. Now, why that is, why insurers aren't doing more to rein in unnecessary care, it's, it's a pretty complicated story that um, I explore in some detail in the paper, but it has to do with legal incentives, norms, um, and market failures. So ultimately, ultimately, what I do in the paper is I argue that the current system where insurers are basically deferring to physician autonomy is, is flawed because it creates this unnecessary care problem, or at least it's, it contributes to it. Um, the other end of the spectrum, though, where insurers drive reimbursement decisions, well, that's equally flawed because, as we know, insurers you know ration care for profit rather than quality. But I think there is, or at least there should be, still a role for insurers. The The question is essentially, how can insurers get physicians to decrease unnecessary care without, you know, running all over their autonomy rights? Can I just push you a little bit more on the reason why insurers don't seem to be reducing claim 
costs. Because it, it truly struck me as, as counterintuitive. And it's an issue that I hadn't really understood until I read Elizabeth Rosenthal's, that's two, two mentions on one pod, Elizabeth, return my calls, an American sickness book. And she raises these issues and comes up with an interesting list of reasons. One, they just really don't care very much about you, the consumer. Uh, they're only sort of uh, looking after their juice, you know, their 20%. But also there was a hint that the medical loss ratio legislation in, in the ACA might have created a perverse incentive for them to allow costs to go up. And then also there's the sort of the, the buddy system that since they're not really paying for any of this, they may as well maintain good relationships with the hospitals and networks that they want to continue working with. Of all of the, the explanations that you sort of went through, and, and you have some, some great ones in your piece, uh, are, are there a couple that you think really explain this, or is it just a, a, a sort of a mess of, of Venn diagrams? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Elizabeth Rosenthal is frankly right on all of those, and I think it's probably even more complicated than she makes it out to be. But in a world where insurers can keep raising premiums, um, you know, as you, you said, under the medical loss ratio provisions, if their costs are going up, then their premium increases are, are justified. Um, then there's not incentive for them to be uh, reining in unnecessary care, refusing reimbursement for unnecessary care. I also think, though, that we can't minimize the effect that this huge public blowback during the HMO era has had and continues to have on insurer actions here. Um, you know, people really didn't like when insurers were rejecting reimbursement and impacting uh, both the decisions that physicians could make in, in the interests of patient care and also, frankly, the decisions that patients could make. So I think that it's a combination of factors. We also, um, you know, as particularly after the HMO uh, sort of political failure of the, the 80s and 90s, um, we saw a host of, of regulations come out that made it practically speaking, harder for insurers to do a lot to turn down unnecessary care. So I don't know that there's one particular reason that stands out here, but I think that the bottom line is that insurers don't have the incentives that, you know, at least in some respect, we might want them to have to try to be a little more active in their their reining in of unnecessary care. I think that's right. I I remember uh, reading a piece by Joe White some years ago uh, in the Bill Bank Quarterly about the uh, problem of of insurers being highly concentrated, hospitals being highly concentrated, and then all of the employers that they were dealing with, and we'll just limit it to employer-sponsored plans for now, um, being much less concentrated, and thereby the insurers and providers had bargaining power relative to insurers, insurers had bargaining power relative to the employers, and that was just a recipe for continual uh, ratcheting up of prices. I was wondering, Wendy, I I know from the article that you're proposing something that is a a middle way between, say, untrammeled autonomy for doctors to choose treatment options and control of them via very strict utilization review. And I was wondering if you could explain how that middle way uh, based on clinical decision support systems uh, would work. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, it's a nudge. So if we care about physician 
clinical autonomy, which we do, but we also want to try to get physicians in working with patients to reduce unnecessary care, we have to sort of find a way to get to the middle of this spectrum. So the nudge that I'm proposing is basically an alert. Providers should receive an automated warning before ordering um, what had been identified as commonly overused interventions. So a pop-up that essentially asks, are you sure you want to do X? Here are the links to the research suggesting that X might not be a good idea. Um, and and then, you know, this list of warnings or the data that would underlie the, the programming here, um, I'm suggesting could be based on the Choosing Wisely campaign lists. And one thing that I was wondering in terms of looking at the Choosing Wisely list, and you have a great list in the paper of these types of, of procedures that just should not be done. And, you know, by the way, for our listeners, even if you don't care necessarily about the health law and policy, here's some news you can use. The paper states that, you know, evidence from the gold standard of studies clearly shows that spinal fusion surgeries for low back pain, vertebroplasty for osteoporotic vertebral fractures, coronary stents in patients with non-acute indications, laparoscopic uterine nerve ablation for chronic pelvic pain. You have this list of all of these things that just apparently should not be done and yet continue to be done. And one thing I'm wondering about is, is this something where we would essentially rely on the specialties that are the most expert to come up with, say, the five or 10 um, least useful or outright harmful uh, procedures that should be nudged against? Or is it something that, you know, almost anyone could sort of figure out once they had done a meta-analysis of the uh, studies that are available on these types of procedures? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I think that whenever people have talked in the past about using evidence-based medicine in more meaningful ways and trying to influence health policy, the pushback has always been, well, you know, we need to make sure that, that doctors and other providers still have autonomy to make decisions that are best for their individual patients, and the evidence might not be relevant to any one particular patient's circumstances. So what I like about the, the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is exactly as you described, Frank, where you have medical um, associations that are you know specialty groups, so the, the radiologists are coming up with their own list, and the anesthesiologists are coming up with their own list of, of five or so overused um, interventions. What I like about that is, um, at least from an appearance perspective and from a, a provider buy-in perspective, they're coming up with their own lists. So they're basing them on the studies, and presumably you could have some government panel or even an independent group that's just looking at the evidence and reaching the same conclusions about the most commonly overused interventions. But I think that if it's physician behavior and provider behavior that you're ultimately trying to influence, that um, the having using the, the choosing wisely list can be really impactful that way. So do you have a sense of the kind of evidence that should be used to come up with these lists? I mean, even going on from, from Frank's question, are we looking at comparative effectiveness research, cost-effectiveness analysis and so on in in leading these or would it be based more on just raw costs uh, very high costs with regard to a particular type of treatment that is just sort of you know pulling down the rest of of the system so i'm actually um sort of hesitant to tie these solutions specifically to cost effectiveness or cost measures what i'm trying to do in the paper is argue that there's actually all sorts of care out there that is just plain ineffective regardless of the cost considerations. So I'm, I'm trying not to get into the territory of intervention A is uh, likely to 
be effective 75% of the time, but is more expensive. And intervention B is likely to be effective 60% of the time, but is cheaper. And what do we do in those sorts of situations? And what are the trade-offs? Because there's some low-hanging fruit here. There are the things, you know, as Frank sort of let off, uh, read off the list that I include in the paper, there are things that don't work that we are paying for. And, um, you know, the, this pushback against these decisions about cost effectiveness are so difficult and can be personal. And um, I, I just I want to stay away from that in this paper, because I think that it um, it's really made it so that we haven't been able to address the things that are easier decisions. So I'd rather start with the easier decisions first. I think that's right. I think that, you know, focusing on the easier decisions, focusing on the, the type of low-hanging fruit that can have consensus in the specialty uh, groups themselves is really helpful here. And I'm also wondering in terms of the overall vision of how to cut costs here in terms of the nudge, there is some concern about information overload at the point of care that there will be, and I think uh, at the St. Louis uh, Journal of Health Law Policy a few years ago, there was a piece called Too Many Alerts, Too Many Liabilities, etc. And do you think there's a role, for example, for designers to be involved to figure out exactly how this type of care would be warned against? And also, we talked earlier about informed consent, whether a super nudge might be to not merely have the doctors see the information, but also to require them to disclose it to their patients that they had been warned against uh, these types of procedures. I think that's absolutely right. As a side note, I've actually, I have another article called um, Nudging Patient Decision Making that's coming out in the Washington Law Review, where I I make some suggestions about the information that patients should be presented um, when they're making decisions to try to handle some of the biases that that are contributing also to the unnecessary care problem. But I do think you're absolutely right. And I I cite that symposium, which I think was terrific in the article about um, needing to be careful about information overload and providers getting frustrated and finding that there's an increased administrative burden and burdens on their time and starting to ignore um, or, or resent the fact that the warnings are in there in the first place because that would be counterproductive. But there's this huge, great body of evidence. A lot of research has been done about the effectiveness of warnings. And I think that you know if the system were to be implemented, or at least if we were to start experimenting with it a little bit more, we should really be drawing on that evidence um, and those studies. And that's one of the great things about the choosing wisely lists is that they are uh, discrete. We're not talking about thousands of pop-ups that are going to be coming up at any given time. We're talking about, um, you know, really a limited number. And I think that that addresses the the concerns about alert fatigue. The, uh, the Ridgely and Greenberg piece on alert fatigue and so on. What you're really doing here, potentially doing, is adding more alerts, uh, which I think is an issue. The other thing is when you look at an alert from the perspective of the physician um, moving away from the the fatigue issue. Um, what should doctors do when they get an alert? Um, generally, they dislike them, I believe, um, because of a sense that their own uh, professional uh, decision-making is being interfered with. Um, but also, there are difficult sort of institutional med-mal kind of reasons that are going to influence the reaction of a doctor to a nudge like this. So on the 
the point about um, how physicians are going to react to the warnings, I certainly concede that a lot of these clinical decision support systems that are out there right now are very much flawed because of the fact that they just have too many warnings and alerts and um, providers have come to view them as not helpful because many times the information that they're based on is, um, you know, is, is not super relevant and, um, you know, they just, they don't trust them. I think that's a separate problem here. Um, you know, the system that I'm contemplating being implemented would be a discrete one. And I think that, um, you know, it could be implemented hand in hand with fixing the, it's mostly drug warnings these days. It's mostly warnings about uh, drug drug interactions or dosage issues and that sort of thing. So I think you could both fix clinical decision support systems and also implement something like this that's targeting unnecessary care at the same time. But I do think that there is a, a cultural norm issue here. And, um, you know, one of the things that the the folks behind choosing wisely, at least have stated as a goal is, is to try to address that that part of the problem. And I do think that you're finding that there are more providers out there that recognize that unnecessary care is a problem and that, you know, the worst solution for them is more utilization review and more um, insurer-driven reimbursement decisions. This is actually not a solution that's going to really impact their autonomy or their their clinical decision-making abilities because they could still ignore the warning if they think that it's not relevant to a particular patient. But I think a huge part of, of the, the purpose or the benefit of having an alert system like this is to spread information. There are some you know really interesting studies that have been done recently that find things like it takes on average 17 years for evidence to make it into clinical practice. That seems kind of like a, an extreme number to me, but, um, but I can... I can sort of see how it, it does take a long time for custom and practice to change in the medical field, despite the fact that the new evidence has come out. So I think that another benefit of the alert system is to try to impact that. Do you think also insurance companies are going to have to change some of their reimbursement practices? Because as I look at this space, I think probably the, the most positive proposal I've seen over the last uh, five to 10 years has been CMS's CJR, the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Reimbursement Model. Um, I I assume those kinds of forward-thinking models are now at risk under the new regime. But do you think those kinds of reimbursement approaches could be taken by insurance companies and alongside something like uh, these nudges help us with this problem? I think where the data is good enough and we, we feel very confident about the data, then you could see some of that happening. We certainly see a lot of that happening abroad. Um, But I think there are a lot of hurdles to insurance companies taking more aggressive approaches to reimbursement. Um, I, you know, I've thought a lot about some of these suggestions about value-based insurance, because this is one opportunity that insurance companies might have to tier reimbursement. So if I want to encourage physicians and patients to choose one particular intervention over another, one thing I might do is reimburse um, or, or pay higher rates or reimburse at a higher percentage or change copays so that I make it um, more uh, attractive to choose one option over another. Um, 
I just think that in our current environment, that it's going to be really hard for insurers to to do to make changes like that. And it has a lot to do, again, with our, our importance that we put in, in healthcare in the U.S. on physician and patient autonomy and people really not wanting to see insurance companies making decisions that really impact the kind of care that, um, that individuals can get, particularly if it's care that their physicians are recommending that they should have. We don't have a huge amount of time left, so I wanted to be sure to get in some discussion discussion of your recent piece uh, and presentation on price transparency, a contract solution. And this has been something that, you know, we've been discussing with folks like Aaron Fouzé-Brown and and others in terms of how difficult it is to figure out as a patient exactly what the cost of a given procedure will be. Um, There was also another uh, big piece this week about a company called MCare that apparently uh, specializes in staffing emergency rooms. uh, And it turns out that many of the ways in which it staffs uh, results in out-of-network bills can be very high for folks in the emergency room, et cetera. Yeah, that, that one so nearly made my lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so maybe it'll get to the show notes. We shall see in our, this brutal Darwinian competition for uh, Mindshare on the Twill uh, show notes page. <laughs> but uh, in any event, the, the question I'm wondering about is in terms of uh, price transparency is, you, know, you, you do have an approach to it, and I'd love for you to explain it to the listeners. And then um, I do want to follow up on some operas operationalization uh, details. You know, and I'm in addition to writing about health law issues, health law and policy, I'm also a contract scholar. So I may have been a little bit predisposed to come at this price transparency problem through that lens. Um, but I do, you know, I do think that there is a major contributor to lack of price transparency in healthcare that's coming through our, our common law of contracts. And what I mean by that is this. So patients and providers enter into contracts that, that obligate the patient to pay the doctor, but they're incomplete. They don't have a price. Nonetheless, courts enforce these contracts. So there's no incentive, at least looking at it from a contract law perspective, for providers to give a price at the time of contracting. And of course, you know, there, there may have been reasons that this made sense historically, and it certainly, you know, still makes sense in certain contexts today, emergency care and particularly complicated surgeries and whatnot. But if you look at contract theory about when it's preferable to encourage more complete drafting of contracts and and when it's better to let the parties uh, leave a contract rather less complete, much of healthcare today, I think, seems to fall into the category of, of complete is better. Um, it's not costless for the provider to give a price in most situations. It's it's pretty, um, but it, it's pretty easy to do in most situations. So um, if we look at it through a contracts lens, and what we actually want is more complete contracts, well, we have a common law contract solution at our disposal, and that is an information forcing penalty default rule. Basically what it would be, and this, this harkens back to Robert Gertner and Ian Ayer's work in this area, but it essentially means that um, choosing an undesirable default to force the parties to contract around it. So where parties fail to include a price, in this case, if providers you know, don't give a price to patients at the time of contracting, but it would have been reasonable for them to do so, courts should fill the gap with a price of $0, the point being that providers um, will be prompted to include a price in the patient contract in the future. Got it. And one of the things that I'm thinking about here is it does seem as though if this were implemented, we could avoid many of these really scary stories about the uh, people going in for a procedure that, say, is usually $11,000 and it turns out it's $68,000 or a PET scan that ends up being you know a $7,000 out-of-pocket uh, that they never would have had if they had known 
um, or they would have uh, shopped around perhaps. The last part of it, and I know this uh, is not necessarily part of your current scholarly project, but I thought it might be something we could discuss is, would there also be a requirement for insurers to give a solid estimate of how much of that price they would pay and to give that in a timely manner? Um, or do you think that would be just too much of a burden to put on the insurers to sort of calculate that and uh, give that information in advance? No, I think that's an excellent point. I think that absolutely has to be part of it because uh, you know one of the things that I think is is really good about the contract solution and maybe better than some of the legislative solutions out there is that it would be designed to give patients the price that they actually care about that's actually relevant to their decision. And you're just taking the price that would be provided to them, you know, ex post later on after they've already had the procedure and they've been given the bill and moving it earlier in the process. And I think that, you know, as I've talked to people in the field, there are some technological hurdles to providers um, getting this information from insurers. But, you know, those are not insurmountable when the patient presents their insurance card before they actually go in and see the doctor um, that, you know, at least in theory should enable the provider to be able to pull up um, information uh, that that would be relevant to the patient in terms of price. So I do think that there has to be a collaboration here. Interestingly, I think um, going back to the previous piece, insurance companies are usually much better at providing that upfront information than uh, are the uh, uh, providers. Where, of course, that sort of falls apart is that the insurers seem inadequate in providing that information in these outlying cases that cause us real problems. Uh, The surprise billing kind of case, the the out-of-network issue and so on. Yeah, you know, I think that this solution does work better for certain aspects of healthcare than it does for others. I I wish I could say that it would fix the, you know, emergency room care where um, the emergency room physician is out of network and the patient ends up with a surprise medical bill. But I think more likely what the solution helps is is routine healthcare, which frankly is a huge percentage of healthcare. The emergency room care by a lot of estimates is like less than 10% of of care that's being delivered. So I'm not sure I can fix some of the the outlier problems with the price transparency solutions, but the more routine care I think we definitely can get at. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Epstein for joining us. Uh, You can find her on Twitter at Prof W Epstein. That's P-R-O-F-W-E-P-S-T-E-I-N. Thank you so much, Wendy. Great pieces. Great to hear you. Thanks for having me. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter, where I'm, of course, ranting at the moment about everything skinny. And Frank, where will you be ranting this week? (laughs) I'll be at both Frank Pasquale on Twitter and uh, HealthPI on Twitter. Well, let's hope we all get skinny. Thank (laughs) you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.